Namo dasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo dasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo dasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Buddhang dhammang sankhang namasami Well, this is the uh, continuation of the talk Being Human uh, by Lumpur Sumato, and this was given on the 9th of August 2002 at the uh, Leicester Summer School. So, what does it mean to be human? We can regard it as a way of justifying our weaknesses. Well, I'm only human. Or we can think of it in terms of caring about humanity. Obviously, being human has something about it that we respect, because we're often drawn to the idea that someone is fully human. We like to be around people like that. If people are too stiff archetypically, you can worship. If people are too stiff archetypically, you can worship them, but you don't want to hang around them too much. It does make you feel terrible because you feel you are not that good. You can adore the guru that proclaims his divinity, and some people love to adore the guru. Theravadan Buddhists generally are not that type. They don't adore gurus very much. When you really contemplate the Theravada teachings, you realize that your humanity is to be recognized, to be respected. So there is no question of harming your body. Of, of taking up ascetic practices and doing terrible things to it with the idea that the body is an obstruction to enlightenment. The thought that you have to control the physical body and all its desires, that you have to make yourself completely desireless, would be another ego trip, wouldn't it? I'm totally rid of all my desires now. That would be just another ego prop. In contemplating the way things are, you're looking at the world, the world that you live in. This realm with its four elements, earth, fire, water and air, and your own humanity, and the limitations you are under as one individual human being. As this entity here, this single entity that seems to be a person. And as you develop this trust in awareness, you see more and more that the subject is not the person. Personality is something that comes and goes and changes. You become a personality according to conditions. But the absolute subjectivity of this moment is not personal. I cannot claim it as Ajahn Sumato in any way. It is pure awareness, not male or female, not even Buddhist, but like this. The absolute subject of this moment recognizes the experience of being an entity in the universe incarcerated in this human form with the conditioned realm that we are living in, with earth, fire, water, and the air realm, and the conditioned emotions and perceptions that we acquire after we are born. The absolute subject of this moment is consciousness and awareness that's always here to abide in once we begin to appreciate and trust it. This awareness is non-personal, and it's the same for all of us. We are actually one in that. Even though it seems as though the subject is here, 
when we abide in pure awareness, we are actually one, not lost in the realm of identifying with the body or the perceptions that we experience. This is what I call real refuge in the Buddha or Buddha. So if you recollect, there was some uh, earlier teachings by Lumpur Sumedha reflecting on, um, say, visiting his family and the identity of, uh, on the one hand, of being, uh, being Ajahn Sumedho, abbot of Amravati and sort of well-known and highly respected meditation teacher and then being with his mum and dad and being their little boy and uh, <coughs> particularly his father, uh, say, uh, in, in his old age, having a, a very a, a childish, childlike uh, attitude. And so how in the eyes of his parents, then he's just uh, you know, their son, and that's primarily who he is. In the eyes of other, other people, uh, then he's, he's something else. He's a you know, Lumpur Sumato, great uh, enlightened master. And, and so that uh, the point that he's, uh, he's making here in terms of, we say, being human, or, or I say that, uh, <clears throat> being fully human, then uh, it's um, taking the perspective that... Uh, the quality of, of, uh, of say, humanness, we ten- generally refer to in terms of our personality, being a woman, being a man, being a, a monastic, a layperson, older, younger, healthy, sick, and so on. These are sort of personal qualities. But the, um, uh, <clears throat> what uh, uh, Lumpur Sumato is reflecting on here, in, in terms of this, uh, this, uh, this Dhamma teaching, is that, uh, as he says, um, <clears throat> The absolute subject this, of this moment recognizes the experience of being an entity in the universe. That uh, <clears throat> that absolute subjectivity of this moment is not personal. Personality is something that comes and goes and changes. You become a personality according to conditions. Uh, <clears throat> and so that the uh, this single entity seems to be a person, and uh, I was uh, a few days since the last reading, but you'll remember that the word person in English comes from the Latin persona, which is a, the word for a mask. So per means through in Latin, and sona is the word for sound. So a mask is that which the sound goes through. If you have a mask hiding your face, then the, that is a persona. So right there in the English word, you have this a performance. It's a mask. It's a, a thing that is presented to, uh, to the world, to observation. But it's not the real thing. It's not what is behind uh, the mask. And so as... Um, uh, as uh, Lumpur is saying here, the, um, that <clears throat> the uh, absolute subject of this moment is consciousness and awareness. The awareness is non-personal. So um, a way that I like to phrase this is that which knows the person is not a person, uh, which is you're saying exactly the same thing, that there's a quality of awareness, a quality of knowing that is not personal. And as Lumpur points out here, it's not, it, uh, it's not female, it's not male, it's not old, it's not young, it's not even Buddhist. But it's, as he says, it's like this. So just as we wouldn't say, an example I often use is uh, we wouldn't say my gravity or I am gravity or I own gravity. Like it's ridiculous, isn't it? But yet we say I am aware or this is my awareness or I, I am, uh, I know, uh, I'm, uh, I'm knowing this or I am, I am this awareness. You wouldn't say I am this gravity or even I have this gravity. You say it's experienced. I experience gravity or it's, it's felt here. But we wouldn't say it's female gravity or male gravity or Theravadan gravity or Mahayana gravity or Buddhist or Christian or, <laughs> or uh, anything. Those words don't apply. And so what Lumpur is trying to do in this teaching is to, to bring that same sort of 
uh, obviousness or that natural perspective to to the quality of awareness, so that then um, the uh, uh, say, as he says, the real refuge is being that awareness, so that then the the mind takes that as its uh, as its basis. So rather than identifying with with uh, being uh, male or female, or old or young, or healthy or sick, or, or, or whatever, then it's recognized those those particular qualities of earth, water, fire, and wind, um, those qualities of the, the changing uh, uh, conditioned world, they arise, take shape, and dissolve within uh, awareness, but they're not bound to it. They, they don't limit that, that awareness. And so that... That uh, that quality of of knowing is intrinsically free from limitation by what is known. The subject, uh, the ultimate subject, uh, that quality uh, of knowing is not limited by the objects that it is aware of. So whether by by being aware of a clock, the mind is not locked into that clock. It's not incarcerated in that clock. But yet we feel we are incarcerated. The body appears in the mind. So we might feel I'm trapped in this body. Oh, I'm, bur- I'm burdened by this body. What we're saying is. I'm experiencing feelings that come from the body that I don't like, or uh, the body can't fly through the air, or, or, or be free of, of pain, or uh, maybe um, uh, able to to say, do do certain things, climb up mountains uh, as easily as it used to. And so I'm I'm limited by this body, or I'm imprisoned by this body. But uh, the the shift of perspective that Lumpur is is speaking about here is extremely important because even if your body can't even walk. The mind which knows that the body that can't walk, you know, maybe you're in a wheelchair or you're uh, stuck in, in, a, in a bed or in a hospital, uh, <clears throat> that the mind which knows that that body is not limited by that body. It, it's, it's knowing those feelings of the body being in one place or having certain sets of feelings, but the mind is not intrinsically limited by that. And so, um, again, I was referring the other day to this uh, teaching that the Buddha gave to Nakula Pitta, who was very, very old and, uh, and sort of decrepit when he came to the Buddha. And uh, his Nakula Pitta and Nakula Mata were a, a, an old couple who were very close to the Buddha. And according to the stories, they'd been the Buddha's parents in numerous, uh, numerous lifetimes. And Nakula Pitta came to the Buddha and very aged and decrepit and said, you know, I'm very old and very ill and, and feeble. Um, can you uh, uh, say Describe to me, or can you help explain to me what's the best way of of working with uh, 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 the situation of being so old and having so many physical afflictions? And the Buddha then says, well, it's, it's one thing to be afflicted in body, but another thing to be afflicted in mind. It's far better to be afflicted in body and not afflicted in mind than afflicted in mind and not afflicted in the body. So it's better to have a mind that's awake with a wretched body <laughs> than a mind that is uh, 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 that is attached and confused and and uh, and grasping with a body that is healthy so that uh, and then the teaching that the buddha gives to nakula pitta is basically a recitation of the anatalakana sutta the teaching on on that self and going through the the body feelings perceptions mental formations consciousness and Encouraging Nakula Pitta to to see things in that way, to re- reflect on the five khandas as this is not me, this is not what I am, this is not myself. So that uh, uh, when also a, a word that is useful to reflect on, it's, it's not a very common word in uh, the Pali Canon, but uh, 
uh, in the, the, the book that uh, Lumpur Pasando and I put together called The Island on Teachings on Nibbana, we gave it a whole chapter, which is the word Atamayata. And uh, it only appears about five or six times in the Pali Canon. But uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa used to refer to this as the ultimate Buddhist concept. This is the sort of the um, ultimate expression in, in language of the, the most sort of profound and meaningful uh, quality of mind. So it literally means uh, a means not, tam means uh, made of, uh, as, uh, no, sorry, uh, a tang means that, maya means made of, atamayata. So it literally means not made of that or not thatness. So it's a kind of Buddhist version of Advaita, and not two, not sub, no subject, letting go of subject and object. So uh, atamayata is that quality of awareness that is completely un, unattached and unlimited by the objects of experience. Um, so that it's a uh, uh, the mind that is, is fully awake and knows the field of experience and is in a responsive uh, say attuned uh, relationship to what is perceived to the to the realm of, of objects and perceptions, but it is not bound by that. It's not limited by that. It's not made of that. And uh, in a, a very helpful little uh, essay that was written by uh, Richard Gombrich, the professor of uh, Pali and Sanskrit at, at Oxford, um, he uh, he he points out that the word atamayata comes from the uh, so the ancient indian model of perception where the idea say uh, perceiving that clock is like the the eye uh, seeing the clock sends out a kind of um, uh, sort of magnetic ray a kind of ray of, emer- of energy emerges from the the eye occupies the uh, the clock becomes uh, consubstantial with the clock tanmayata it kind of Embodies the clock and then comes back and then the uh, the the eye receives it and sees oh that's a clock so it's like there's the kind of the mind's energy goes out occupies the object and then uh, and then comes back <clears throat> so that quality of being um, consubstantial with the object is called in Pali as tanmayata so atamayata is not being consubstantial, not going out and occupying things, not being born into sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, or thoughts and feelings, emotions, and so on. So it's clear, it's it's in a way uh, describing perfectly that quality of um, of say insight in vipassana meditation, that clear and unbiased uh, say knowing of a feeling. Uh, uh, a regret or an angry emotion or a, a feeling of pain or a a, a, a sound a, you know subtle sound or a loud sound that those qualities are being uh, uh, say known in the in the field of experience they arise they take shape they dissolve and so that the mind is not going out and getting bored in oh I like that sound I don't like that sound or I shouldn't have that regret or I, I hate this feeling or I'm worried about that person it doesn't get born into those those objects, whether they're a memory or a thought or a sound or a sight, whatever, that it doesn't become consubstantial. It's not tanmayata, but it's atamayata. So uh, in that um, uh, that chapter in the island, then we repeat we kind of, uh, a lot of the, the useful things that Rajan Buddha Dasa um, wrote about that. But in respect to this particular quality, like what Lumposamedo is talking about here as the um, the absolute subject, that's also, Atamayatara is talking about that. 
that same when he uses the word absolute subject, that uh, that quality of awakened awareness, that in a, a mysterious way is the essence of being human, <laughs> the essence of of, uh, of uh, say that quality of experiencing, but yet it's free of all human limitation. It's free from birth and death. It's free from from their social conventions and being a woman, being a man, being old, being young, being tall, being short, being healthy, being sick, being a lay person, being a monastic, being uh, being in anything. <laughs> so um, that uh, is also useful to, I feel that word atamayata uh, is a, a helpful way of also describing that quality of, of awareness. And so Dumpo says, this is the real refuge in the Buddha, or what you can call buddho, or being awake. So, any thoughts, reflections, questions? Just wondering if that's a bit like the Holy Spirit in Christianity. I wouldn't know how the Christians define the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Probably depends which Christian you talk to. If it, if it is, then I would say yes. <laughs> but yeah, so I remember once um, be, being in an intermonastic dialogue with, uh, with some uh, Christian contemplatives. Somebody uh, asked the question, so how do you define soul? And there was this groan that went <laughs> from you know, at least uh, well, a good proportion of the Christian monastics. Oh, don't even ask us. <laughs> yeah, even in one convent, one monastery, everyone will have a different answer. You know, learn it across different traditions. So there doesn't seem to be a lot of common agreement on those kind of terms. But yeah, it's um, it, it might well be. And also, surely, isn't it by the saying it is something? It's like is something. Well, it's a something that is no thing. <laughs> The, uh, it, because as soon as you you say that awareness is a is a thing, then the the mind takes hold of it as a as an idea or as a as an object. You can. It's like I often in the last year or two I've been quoting a lot this particular passage where the Buddha talks about that talks about his own nature, and uh, he he's having a conversation with Vachagota, and Vachagota is a, a wanderer from different religious. Um, community and he's often coming to the Buddha and asking questions and uh, and so uh, the Buddha has just he's been asking the Buddha what happens to an enlightened being at the death of the body and the Buddha is saying you're asking the question in the wrong way he said where do they go and the Buddha said you you can't say that they go or they don't go or they both go and not go or they neither go nor not go this that the doesn't apply and then he talks about his own so in a way, his own subjective experience. And he says, um, if I can remember this correctly, he said, um, uh, that material form, feeling, perception, mental formations and consciousness, whereby one who is trying to describe the Tathagata would describe him, that has been cut off at the root, made like a palm tree stump, deprived of the conditions of existence and rendered incapable of arising in the future. The Tathagata is liberated from being reckoned in terms of form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness. Uh, he is profound, immeasurable, unfathomable, like the great ocean. 
So, if you decode that, <laughs> unpack that a little bit. So, the Buddha say you try to define the Tathagata, the awake, say, talking about his own nature, but also the awake mind, then you can't define that in terms of the body, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness. That those are cut off at the root, made like a palm tree stump, deprived of the conditions of existence, and so on. And the Tathagata is liberated from being reckoned, from being measured in those terms. And then, he, But then he says, he is profound, immeasurable, unfathomable. So that quality, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's an isn't, that quality of, of awakened awareness, but it can't be defined in terms of the five khandhas, form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness. But it's profound, immeasurable, unfathomable, like the great ocean. So like, if you're standing at the, at the seashore, and, and also if you're not, if you don't usually go to the sea, and you, you go to the seashore and, it's, uh, and you look out over the water, something in the heart goes, wow. Yes, that's big. And then a sense of wonderment, a sense of limitlessness, it just sort of reaches to the horizon. And what's under the surface? The heart, you don't know, you can't see, you can't tell. So there's this vastness, this immeasurability, the sense of wonder. There's an isness, but you can't define it. So that, I feel, is one of the most important teachings that we have in the Pali Canon, because the Buddha's saying, yeah, there is this quality, but you can't define it in your ordinary everyday language. Yeah, like concepts and words can't go there. It's like that currency is not valid across the border. So that um, uh, the uh, and one of the the um, important aspects of of the Theravada teachings is the Buddha spends most of his attention, most of the time and effort in the in the teachings, talking about how to arrive at that realization, rather than trying to describe what that quality is, or, or what when the mind is awake, or what nibbana sort of is in, in detail. He, Ninety-nine percent of the teaching is how to make the journey to arrive at that at that realization, and rather than what you know, going into the profound, immeasurable, unfathomable like the ocean, and then okay, let's talk about that some more. <laughs> to the because then the mind gets lost in words and concepts, and that, uh, and you know, the the word "see" is not the sea; it's just a word, it's just a sound. And uh, so that the the effort that the Buddha made was to help uh, his listeners, the the people who are practicing, to to do what's necessary for the heart to awaken to that that quality, to embody that quality, rather than having a a kind of, eloqu- sort of eloquent or or uh, intricate uh, verbal description or conceptual description of it. Okay, so to continue. I encourage you to listen to your personality non-judgmentally. And if immature, emotional reactions come up, if anger or resen- and resentment or negative states come up, or you get carried away with inspiration and all of the good stuff of life, just say, fine, welcome. The point is not to judge any of it, not to cling to it or prefer it, but to merely trust yourself to be the witness. Things arise and cease. They are what they are. And in this attitude of, it is what it is, I find a way of accepting experience without judging it. As soon as I say, immature emotion, quote-unquote, I'm making a value judgment about what I'm experiencing. 
And the logic that comes from that is that I am an emotionally immature man. There is such a strong resistance to some mental states that it takes real determination in awareness to accept them. But if you can, trust yourself to accept the things that you don't like. For me, it took real patience to do this. Patience, quote-unquote, means, of course, allowing something to be what it is, something that you don't like or don't want. If you are impatient, you say, oh, I can't be bothered, get rid of it. But patience allows you to bear with conditions that you don't want, don't like, can't stand. The more you are willing to accept things, the more you can actually observe them, and then you find that they are nothing, really, just kind of changing energies that have arisen with nothing permanent in them. The point is not to try to claim to be that which is aware. As soon as you say, I am somebody who is very aware, you're back into the realm of identifying with awareness, and that's not to be encouraged. It's a question of being the awareness, and being the awareness is an act of faith, because you can't find awareness as an object. You simply can't get hold of it, so you have to be it. That's where this attitude of relaxation and opening comes in. And if you can do that only for a moment, be grateful for it. If you're constantly losing it, don't be critical of yourself. Just be more accepting of the fact that this is the way it is, but still with a kind of determination. And after a while, you will find that you're learning to be with this natural state of being. This is not a creation of your mind. It's not a state that you attain merely from ideal situations or very refined conditions. Whatever you're doing, even if you're knitting on the Silk Road, as Fiona did, <laughs> it does not preclude mindfulness. So I'm not sure what the knitting on the Silk Road is, is about. It's obviously somebody who was at, the, uh, at this Leicester Summer School was talking about knitting on the Silk Road, so I guess somewhere in the uh, uh, in, so Uzbekistan or the Taklamakan Desert or somewhere. But um, anyway, <laughs> even in, in strange or complicated situations, it doesn't preclude mindfulness. So also the um, uh, <clears throat> this is uh, a very very common and important theme, and that where we are say impatient with our emotions, maybe we have a, a habit that we uh, we're trying to uh, to free the heart from, and it just keeps coming back, or we have things that we're dependent on that we have to have certain things around or we, we can't live without particular kinds of food or a particular kind of uh, place to live or particular activities available to us and oh can't stand this i've got to have that um and that uh, those sort of dependencies often are what bring up uh, immature emotions and uh, uh even if the mind makes that kind of a judgment oh i'm really a foolish person or i should have got over that by now you know haven't i learned that yet i should be more grown up to be ready to, to recognize even those judgments as part of a conditioned and, and habitual pattern. And that uh, uh, over and over again, patience is the, uh, uh, in a way, the, the central uh, attribute of, of the, the practice or the most sort of powerful element of practice. And uh, one of the Buddha's teachings that he actually gave to 1250 arahants was uh, that patient endurance. Uh, is the supreme practice, kanti paramang tapotitika. Uh, so that that, uh, and that patience in Pali, it's not a, a gritting your teeth and waiting for something painful to be over, but it's rather that uh, 
as that attribute of the heart that is able to let go of time, that it is an openness of heart to the way things are in the present. So that it's there isn't really an English word that quite corresponds to the paramita of Kanti. Uh, it's not there isn't. Uh, so patient endurance is like okay, buckle down. This is going to be tough, and you you grit your teeth and tense up. But the the paramita of patience is the mind that doesn't create a future. It's not hoping. It's not waiting. There is no future. It's just here it is. <laughs> so there 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 isn't really an English word that that conveys that. I, at least not not one that I'm aware of. But it's that kind of it's. Talking about dealing with difficult conditions or something that's uncomfortable and unwanted, not likable. So you you can't be patient with with um, delicious food, or <laughs> you can't be uh, patient with with um, say having something that that you you, you like or is really comfortable. It's the very word is implying a quality of difficulty or burden or stress. But the paramita, that which is liberating, that which helps to carry the heart across is that, just as Lumpur says, it is what it is, here it is. And uh, it's absolutely uh, okay that it's this way, this uncomfortable, difficult feeling is, is like this. And in, the mind's not negotiating, it's not waiting for it to be over, it's not hoping to have something different, it's a, it's a surrender. So, there's a, 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 another Sanskrit word that uh, is related to that is pranidhana, which means surrender. It's like, that. it's like a complete openness of heart, a letting go of, of uh, self-view and preference. So that when uh, uh, when we're talking about the sort of difficult emotional states, then uh, and, and patience, it's not a sort of res- there's no resentment or begrudging. It's not there's no uh, a, uh, waiting or as I said, sort of uh, uh, hoping it's going to be different, but rather it's that, that uh, and it's not a shutting down. It's not a just okay, just switch off and it'll be over soon. Just kind of, I'll just zone out here. It, that's also not the parameter. It's a it's a wakeful state, a wakeful state of self surrender. So maybe that that's uh, the closest that we have in English is is self surrender that uh, and uh, a letting go of time that uh, uh, expresses that quality uh, of patience in a in a good way. I tried to go to Mount Kailash in 1998, so that was four years before he gave this talk, but got turned back because the Chinese didn't want monks entering Tibet in those days. I did get to the northwestern part of Nepal, the Humla area, and then up through these very narrow high mountain passes. There were no roads, and like Fiona, I became very frightened, agoraphobic in fact. I looked down into this seemingly bottomless pit, and the Karnali River was way down there at the bottom. I was way up here. I realized then that if I took one full step, I would fall down the cliff. But, using this awareness, however, by paying attention to the sound of silence, this cosmic vibration, the fear went away. Fear is a conditioned reaction. So, just by trusting this silence, I stopped creating the conditions for fear to arise. Then, I was able to look down the cliff without creating the conditions for fear in my mind. So I uh, I uh, followed the same track that Lumpur took um, in uh, <coughs> in uh, two thousand and thirteen. Uh, walked up the 
um, uh, through the the Humla uh, region, uh, the uh, valley of the Karnali River, and uh, starting from Simikot up to um, the uh, Shipship Pass, I think was the name of that at the top, and then down into Tibet, um, uh, and uh, so followed the the same route. So I know that what he's talking about there are some pretty hairy spots. <laughs> Long way down, um, but uh, that uh, <clears throat> and I didn't have so much of a, a fear of heights, but uh, making that same that same journey and having the, the, the thinness of air and carrying backpacks and such like uh, through the the region, um, what I, I did notice was that because there's there's no roads, there's no kind of medical help. You're just you're really out there on your own. There's small. Uh, 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 Nepali villages uh, along the way, but um, you would uh, you would find that you you would get worried about your own physical well being. Have a pain in your foot or a pain in your back or kind of some kind of weird muscle um, ache and or some kind of joint that is tweaked. And you go, oh no, what's happened to my knee? Or oh, I've got something in my 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 back? Or oh, my, what's going on with my neck? And the mind would easily. Uh, relate to those sense of the, the sense of pain with with fear and worry and aversion. Uh, also, just the sheer effort of climbing up these steep rocky tracks and and uh, you know, the lungs being really uh, really pushed and your legs and so on. And uh, it, it was it was really um, a powerful teaching for me because I found that uh, the automatic reactions. To uh, to pain and to weird sensations in in the body, and uh, that was fear and aversion, aversion to the pain, discomfort, the desire to be free of discomfort, the fear of what was going to happen next, the, the fear of injuring yourself, the fear of of being uh, uh, seriously damaged and not being able to go forward or backwards or or whatever, uh, and seeing that um, the the mind going towards uh, those negative states, the destructive states of fear and aversion. Uh, what I, I found was that if you if you notice that and you're aware of that, those reactions, again, didn't um, buy into them and go along with them, but uh, not suppressing them, but rather uh, un, uh, uh, sort of uh, uncritically opening the the heart to them and having loving kindness for those particular feelings or the partic- particular parts of the body, like your your knees or your back or your neck or your whatever it was stressed or pained uh, that de- the deliberate meeting of those sensations and moods with loving kindness and having a consciously um, bringing that sense of acceptance and uh, and not going to the body with just with fear and aversion but sending loving kindness to your knees your back your neck or or congratulating the bits of your body that were working well as well. You know, the knees are a bit, you know, you're a bit stressed, but hey, the lungs are doing great today. And thank you very much, heart. You're beating uh, uh, very, uh, very effectively, and uh, keep the, keep that blood moving. And it might sound a bit flaky, um, but uh, I found that it had an extremely positive effect, and that if you took the trouble to, to consciously appreciate the body and send loving kindness to the the areas that were pained or stressed or or um, uh, under pressure like the lungs or the heart or the legs and knees and uh, ankles and so on that uh, the, the those um 
uh, say those positive qualities of attitude, the sense of, of acceptance and um, uh, appreciation of the body and the situation and where you were and, the, and what you were doing, then it helped the whole system to, to balance out. And it was quite remarkable that, uh, I mean, uh, I don't know what other conditions are at play, but I managed to go through the whole pilgrimage to, to Mount Kailash and walk, walking all the way around it without any kind of physical injury or illness at all. And uh, and I, I could see over and over again, so, you know, many times a day, there would be these different times when they go, oh, what's that? Oh, that's really tough. Oh, my goodness, not that. And to notice that, to 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 have that quality of acceptance uh, and also using the the sound of silence using the action the active uh, practice of loving kindness uh, and sending metta to the different parts of the body and also metta for the mind states and so on and then over and over again you can feel the whole system sort of balancing out relaxing and then you could uh, carry on and uh, and and work with the situation in a, in a very well integrated way so, to continue. I finally succeeded in actually getting to Mount Kailash last May, 2001, during Visakha Puja, the full moon day of May. Oh no, it'll be, um, this was in August, so that would be in uh, May of 2002. Thousands of Tibetans arrived in trucks from all over, and we circumambulated the mountain. 53 kilometers it was. It was hard going, I can tell you, but very inspiring, and so high up, that you could only take a few steps before having to stop. I became really tired going up one particular pass, and two young men came up to me. One took my arm, the other took my day pack, and they helped me up. Now they were wearing lay clothes, but they told me they were Tibetan monks. A physical discomfort is, uh, in general is bearable, I find, if I don't get lost in aversion, if I don't start grumbling or being negative about fatigue or difficulties. If I don't do any of those things, the awareness allows me to join in in inspiring pilgrimages like going around Mount Kailash. And it was very inspiring to be with thousands of Tibetans who had total faith in what they were doing. Some of them were performing these full prostrations at the same time, which was an amazing thing. And that was the same when I was there. We were the first group of Westerners at the beginning of the, the season when we went in, in early May. And there were already uh, uh, many uh, people... Uh, doing on their pilgrimage around the mountain, both Hindu uh, people from India and also uh, Tibetans. And some were indeed doing these three steps and a full-length prostration down onto their faces and going faster than we were. <laughs> we were not stopping to bow to the ground every third step. <laughs> Frequently they were, they were faster. In preparing for these trips to Mount Kailash, I went to Switzerland several times and also on one occasion a Tudong walk with Ajahn Anando and Nick Scott. We started at Harnham and made our way through the Pennines and the Yorkshire Dales. I wasn't very fit in those days, and we had to carry backpacks, a tent and everything. Also, I had borrowed these boots, which were terrible. You may have noticed my big feet. One of them is quite swollen, and I had to squeeze my feet into these boots, which were much too small for me. That brought up all kinds of childish emotions. Oh, why do I do things like this? I want to go home. These were the emotions that came up at that time. But when I look back, I wouldn't have missed it for anything. I would go to Kailash again, even though when I was there, I found it exhausting. The food, I remember, was also terrible. I lose my appetite anyway in high altitudes, but because I could not eat in the evenings, they gave me and another monk who was on the trip a kind of 
packed lunch before noon, which was usually dry bread and a boiled egg. And after a while, I got this aversion to eggs and bread. <laughs> Even the word food, quote-unquote, brought up a feeling of nausea. Yeah, also, we were there in the same season around uh, Visakha Puja, and in Tibet they have a tradition uh, uh, in monasteries uh, that they have extremely plain food for the whole month of, uh, of the, the Visakha month. And so it's a kind of... Um, the, the only food they had in the monastery was uh, as a kind of tasteless gnocchi, a sort of chewy pasta with, with no flavor, which um, was... Uh, that was it. <laughs> However, there were these sort of food stalls uh, around um, that some local uh, uh, enterprising uh, people had set up with, uh, with pot noodles, probably laden with uh, monosodium glutamate. But um, the site of a tent <laughs> sort of on the pilgrimage route, because um, the monasteries, they only had this sort of tasteless gnocchi, like the kind of... Um, uh, it's like a sort of chewy pasta with no flavor. And, uh, and so that uh, it was very nice to be staying in monasteries, but then you could tell that there was sort of spotting a tent. And, hmm, yeah. <laughs> uh, how far before noon are we? <laughs> and it was also interesting that they, the, the Tibetan pilgrims were very fond of these pot noodles as well. So. But, uh, and, uh, uh, but again, you know, you don't, uh, if you dwell in, in, uh, Self-criticism, oh, I'm supposed to be a monk, I should be satisfied with the chewy, tasteless uh, gnocchi, or, and I should not be uh, getting excited over the possibility of some pot noodles. You know. But rather, oh look, you know, the mind is now discerned, if there's a tent like that, it might mean flavor. You know. Therefore, good, you know, want, and just seeing how those dynamics work, and uh, recognize... There's a human system. It it has a it has a hungers. It has it has a tongue. It relates to flavors, and so it calls this uh, uninteresting. It calls this interesting. But they're both equally empty, really. And also, the um, you know the 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 fact is that you don't go there for particular um, flavors, <laughs> but to, to just get what you like. But rather, you use the whole situation as a uh, a learning environment. And before uh, we we left, I was in, in Kathmandu, and uh, there's a, a Tibetan Lama that I've known for quite a few years called the Tsokni Rinpoche, who has a a, um, a a large monastery there. And so we had a, a few days, uh, a week, couple of weeks in Kathmandu to get all of our permits and get everything organized for the trip and for everyone in our group to meet up. And so I uh, <coughs> took the opportunity to go and visit Tsokni Rinpoche's monastery. And um, uh, he wasn't there. He was away uh, in Europe at that time, but uh, his attendant, who I knew quite well, Tashi, was there. And also his mother and his grandfather also happened to, to be there. So um, Tashi took us up to, to meet uh, Rinpoche's mum and the grandfather. And both of them were also experienced uh, practitioners, and his grandfather is also quite a, a well-known uh, Dharma teacher. And so granddad was... was, uh, it was asking us, well, why are you going to Mount Kailash? And, you know, what are you doing that for? And you could tell, like, this is some sort of a, like a, okay, this is a, this is a test. <laughs> and he was interested to see what, what were these Theravadans doing, uh, coming all the way here to Tibet to walk around this mountain. And, and so that um, uh, one of the responses I, I gave to him was uh, to say, well, we're, 
we're uh, going there to uh, say make, take an opportunity to uh, say develop um, wholesome qualities to develop paramita and to, to learn from whatever we meet along the way and he says that's what you're going for and I said essentially yeah that's what we're going just to see to see what we meet and see if we can learn from what, whatever it is that we encounter along the way he said okay you know the Tibetan version of okay and then he said you'll need a stick you, you need a good, and I said I've got a good stick he said yeah, you'll need a really good stick I said yeah I've got a really good stick so I've taken my own a walking stick with me, which you do, you really do need a stick to lean on. It's, a, it's, a, it's not easy with uh, uh, the air so thin. You know, you could walk, literally, you could walk a few paces and then you, you stop, and that stick becomes very precious. Lean on. So, to continue, going to foreign countries into unknown situations and exotic scenes will bring up fears. Anxieties, discomforts, and culture shocks. Even coming to Amravati, I'm sure. <laughs> Brings uh, anxieties, discomforts, and culture shocks. Because you don't have the security of the known around you. As you trust in your meditation more, however, you begin to use this fear, anxiety, feelings of bewilderment and insecurity for practicing, for recognizing and accepting. Then the anxiety falls away. It isn't a question of suppressing anything trying to be a good guy on the trip, but of actually learning from what you're doing. So, consider this pure subjectivity of awareness, the absolute subjectivity. These are just terms, but this is what I call the natural state of awareness, here and now. You arise into that. When I become a person, I say, Ajahn Sumedho. Then I can operate in the conventional world. I neither try to avoid the conventional realm, nor am I endlessly blinded and deluded by conventions. I just put it into the context of what it really is. So, <clears throat> and the, the, the more that we are able to do that, the more that we are able to recognize, it's just like using the, the terminology I was using before, when you recognize that which knows the person is not a person, then mysteriously it makes it much easier to perform as a person <laughs> to uh, to play that role to put on that mask that you you're not and someone because when someone insults you and says you're a real idiot you're a fool you're you're useless then they're just insulting the mask <laughs> or if they praise it they say oh, it's, you're wonderful you're marvelous you're fantastic you're inspiring they're they're just uh, impressed with the mask uh, you you don't take it personally you don't take your life personally which doesn't mean that you're becoming kind of dissociated or, or, um, uh, or a sociopath, but it's holding that whole uh, human realm and the, the feelings of happiness, unhappiness, comfort, discomfort, uh, praise, and, uh, praise and criticism, gain and loss within a, 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 say a, a realistic perspective. And so that the, um, it also helps you to be um, uh, very, very adaptable, because rather than oh, I can't deal with this. This is too uncomfortable. Or, I don't want. I don't want to be on that that situation. It's like, well, it's not you being in the situation. It's the situation being in you, right? <laughs> but you find yourself far more able to deal with with uh, discomfort or or, um, or uh, difficulty. And exactly the same as Lumpur Sumedha, Mount Kailash. 
It was very strange. I've mentioned this many times before after coming back from that trip. I'd never known anything quite like it because you would you would walk, and, you, and even if you're just up a, a small slope, uh, your body would know we're climbing. Okay, you walk 20, 20 paces or 25 paces, then you have to stop. You're not tired. It doesn't hurt, but they just can't get enough oxygen in your lungs to climb anymore. And the, the legs just say, okay, stop. <laughs> and so it was a most strange thing that you... It wasn't unpleasant, it wasn't stressful, it didn't hurt, it just was like, no, you can't climb anymore. <laughs> and then you stop and you go, <sighs> okay, <laughs> and then carry on. So if you were obedient to what the body's limitations were, you could do it. But if you said, no, I've got to keep going, I'm not going to, I'm going to, I'm going to get through this then you would create stress and difficulty and the body would really get punished and really would really be stressed. But if you just adapted to what the situation allowed, then you walk for 10 paces, 20 paces, and then, okay, you stop. Then you breathe, and then get some more oxygen in, and then the body says, Okay, and you realize the body has its own intelligence. It's part of the natural system, just like a bird doesn't have to be taught how to fly, you know, it just you know, gets <laughs> you know, mum and dad knock it out of the nest and then it you know, flaps and then it, it, it does the flying thing or a fish doesn't have to be taught how to swim or, you know, that you just do it or a baby doesn't have to be taught how to walk they just get up and start moving so our body has its own intelligence and that if we are ready to listen to that and just trust uh, as Lumpur is saying here over and over again uh, then and we that we adapt our be the behaviors and the choices according to what the situation allows, then we can be really fine with it. So an interesting little uh, addendum uh, PS to this uh, story of Lumpur going to Mount Kailash was that uh, he, he realized he was older than most of the other people on on the trip and, and and probably less fit than most of the other people he was going with, and so he he made a, a determination that he wasn't going to ask for any kind of privileges. And he was going to be uh, completely open to whatever was offered in the way of food or accommodation or whatever. He would just say, I accept it all. And so he made a, a clear and conscious um, resolution, a determination, Aditana, before uh, he left that he wouldn't make any, have no preferences and make no kind of demands or requests. Whatever was given, that's what he'd live on. That's, that's, that's what he'd go with. So during this trip, um, they would. They were looking after the, the, the Sherpas who were with them, and the, the helpers were taking care of the Westerners. And uh, every morning, they would very carefully heat up some milk on the fire, and then pour the the hot milk over the cornflakes that they brought with them. And so every day, they would have soggy cornflakes. And so uh, Longpo was saying, "Why did if they didn't heat up the milk, then the cornflakes would stay crispy?" And so, uh, uh, so, yeah, but they're ruining the cornflakes every day. And, and they could save fuel. And they're, they're unnecessarily heating up the milk. And so, so, he, so one, she cut a long story short. Eventually he said, um, well, why don't you um, serve up the, uh, the, the cornflakes with, with cold milk on it? That would be much better. Yeah. 
and so he did make that request with respect to the um, the the, uh, the the diet. So what happened was that this this was during the first trip to Mount Kailash. So he got turned back at the border, and um, the uh, <coughs> the the but the rest of the party decided to go on. So that he and and uh, Tan Sugato was with him was the bhikkhu. And so they they had, they were turned back at the Tibetan border. The rest of the group went on, and he got turned back. And they had one Sherpa to take them back to this Tibetan monastery that is about two or three days' walk back into Nepal, Namkha uh, Kyungtsong Monastery. And uh, funnily enough, all, the only food they had with them was cornflakes. And so that was all they had to eat for two or three days was just was some cornflakes. So Lumpur realized he'd made some cornflake karma, and that that was all. <laughs> That's all they had to live on to, to make this, this two or three day hike back into, into Nepal and to get down to the, to the monastery and then to wait for the rest of the group to come and join them. And so uh, Lumpur had a, this feeling that the, the gods of karma were having a kind of tomato, you said. So you're going to get some cornflake treatment. So that was all he, he had to eat till he got back to, to the monastery. And uh, so it was plenty to reflect on during those days because he, you know, he was really weak and hungry and, and uh, that was all they had to live on and that <clears throat> the um, anyway they, they got back to the monastery and eventually got back all the way to, to Kathmandu and they were sitting in this um, in this monastery in, in Kathmandu and this uh, 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 woman came to, to visit someone he'd never met before and she said oh I heard you were staying here I'm really inspired to meet you can I make an offering and so that uh, she um uh, he said, "Yes, certainly." And they're about to fly back to to England the next day. And so she came in with these wrapped up packages and kind of and very with great devotion and ceremony. She offered these packages to Lumpur and then took her leave and, and left. And then he opened them up and it was cornflakes. <laughs> 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 okay, okay, okay. I get the message. I, you know. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> so that might just be projection. But uh, he was uh, one of those mysteriously, uh, karmically appropriate uh, stories that came out of that. So any thoughts, questions, reflections? Okay. Okay. <clears throat>